Hi there, Glocal citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu. I'm coming to you from Accra, Ghana. I'm on my way to another destination. I'm very excited tomorrow. Before that, I'm even more excited to be talking to my guest because what we're talking about is so apropos for a lot of the issues that so many are facing, particularly in the wake of this war that's going on in Eastern Europe between Ukraine and Russia and the ripple effects, not only from that, but also from the aftermath of COVID. You know, we think about there's a lot of supply chain issues, inflationary pressures, and a lot of that has to do with food. And so my next guest is a high growth serial entrepreneur with experience building businesses in Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, and Ghana. As a strong believer in constant learning, building and improving on existing solutions, he is excited about the church, aviation, technology, and agriculture. He is currently CEO of tech startup Grow For Me, which is a web and mobile-based crowdfunding and crowd farming platform that sponsors farmers in growing more crops to solve hunger and poverty problems in Africa. Using drone and satellite imagery, they are able to update sponsors on the progress of the farms they've invested in, while providing the best agronomic advice to optimize farm production. They are solving for Global Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs, 1 and 2, by creating wealth and producing more food at the same time. Nana Opoku Ajemen Prempe. <laughs> I love that name. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Florence. It's a pleasure to meet you and speak with you. Yes, 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 yes. So, Nana, let's jump right in. Tell us, where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? So, uh, I'm from Accra, Ghana. Um, my hometown is uh, called Kwaso. It's close to Ejusso, where a very prominent um, Yasantoa came from. And mm. Kwaso is just about an hour drive from Ejusso. But that's what my that's my ancestral um you know home or my my, my, my village. But I, I grew up and born and grew up in Accra, Ghana, and I schooled throughout my entire life here in Ghana till I was on the Mandela Washington Fellowship in Atlanta University. But the, I think at the core of my experience it has been technology. I spent about um, two years learning how to build software and be a tech entrepreneur in Northwater, and then spend the next seven years building a, a, a fintech and called Asoeba, which basically process payments for churches and for businesses, the product called My Business Space. So I spent uh, seven years on that. And prior to starting Asoeba, I'd, I'd done a two-year master philosophy degree in agricultural engineering with a specification in machine systems. So throughout my, before I started my tech entrepreneur career, I was always asking myself, how do I combine technology and agriculture? And that's when my craft comes in. So seven years in the fintech space, I discovered how to connect my agricultural machine systems experience with my technology experience and I identify with my co-founders the, the opportunity to solve for you know a very critical problems in two particular areas, input financing for crop production and commodity aggregation and trading for food distribution. So currently our company grow for me as a CEO, I'm responsible for driving our company's strategy in terms of um, raising financing for purchasing the farmer's harvest and trading it um, to ensure we have profitability and that food gets to the right places. At the same time, with a little bit of farmer input financing for them to grow. So that's my craft. That's where I'm from. And I'm excited to be talking to you. Mm. So I'm curious a little bit more about machine system because you're the first 
person that's been on to talk about something so technical. So tell us a little bit more about what that is and a little bit more on the, the technique that you've used to marry that into the work that you are doing. Technique of marrying my agriculture engineering experience with the work I'm doing, just to be very clear. So more so like the idea of machine systems, right? So you study machine systems. And so that's, that's I'm an industrial engineer, so it's definitely not the same. And so, but the machine systems is really about, in, in my mind, if I'm the machine Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I would come in after you have like put these machines in a place and then, you know, put them in order for production. And so with you, you you are the mind that is the motor that creates like it's like a master motor mind, I guess. And so in terms of applying that with the fintech side, like I get it for the industrial side, but applying that on the fintech side. Yeah. Yeah. So machine systems primarily in most countries would be called mechanical engineering. Mm, mechanical okay. engineering at the master's level focus in agri-engineering. So we are looking at the elements of that makes up machines and you take these elements and modules and parts to be able to build machines. So for example, gears is a module. Four bar mechanisms are modules or mechanisms are modules. You know, forces are things you need to understand. And you need to have all these components. You have to have clarity on electricals, electronics, a little bit to understand how you're going to have that in your machines. And then you also have to understand um, human management because you're going to have human beings manage these machines. So on top of this, once these machines are made, you have to understand how they can be effectively used on the farm and managed so that they can have a longer um, you know, lifespan to achieve what you want to do. So from the designing, designing means you're doing calculations to determine what kind of forces are needed, what kind of shaft sizes, what kind of gear sizes, the number of teeth to build the machine you need to build, or probably a, a computer design software. And then once you build these parts and put them together into a, a whole machine, you now have to either fabricate or simulate them on a the 3D software. That's simulating that we can now manufacture the parts, the component parts, and put it together to have a full machine running. Mm-hmm. Other prototype running, you now have to commercialize it, I mean you have to design it redesign in such a way that it makes economic sense on the mass production, and you have to be able to recoup your investments. And you have to build in that a maintenance and, and a maintenance regime that ensures that the machines you design can sustain themselves with the right um, you know, uh, services provided. So this is the kind of thing I spent two years learning. Okay. I did my thesis in sound. So I did my thesis on how to use ordinary cocoa husk to prevent noise in, mach- in, in machine shops. So just take coconut, compress mm. it with uh, polyvinyl chloride sheets, or typically what you see as billboards, the, the, the rubber use of billboards, combined mm-hmm. in such a way to insulate the machine shop so that the noise does not go out um, too much and pollute the environment. So this is the kind of thing I studied. Now, how does it translate into my experience in the fintech? Yeah. So I have a modular mind that can understand and break down complex mm-hmm. things into modules. Maybe mm-hmm. take a very complicated problem and, and break it down into modules and attack them using technology as they at specific points that will drive the need to need a change. So that's the kind of experience I brought on in seven years building a fintech that was addressing, at the core was a single technology I built that could address different use cases. So payments in the church setting is, is payment, but it's a little bit different for payments in the business settings. Mm-hmm. Exposure for businesses is slightly different. So once again, breaking these different customer segments and looking them at looking at them as machines and breaking them into components allows you to build so- solutions that address those specific needs. So with all these seven years, 
experience in fintech and my machine system experience, I then came together to build grow for me and grow for me focus on a very complicated problem a very complicated problem in the sense that input financing and production has its own set of challenges while sourcing and gathering these harvests and ensuring they're delivered to the right places has its own set of complex problems so once again we had to break these things into very basic units and deal with them in terms of crop production we realized that farmers needed not just input finances like money to buy fertilizer and seed they also needed mechanization service where they could have their farms plowed. And they also needed, most importantly, through the whole production phase, they needed support and guidance from experts so that they could be told when to um, apply fertilizer, when to apply spray. Because if it's going to rain the next day and you spray, you're just going to lose everything you spray. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, take components to solve for input financing. You, you want to democratize the way you source for funds because banks will not give you money, so you build crowdfunding solution. We want to be able to allow farmers to know what's happening to their farm. So you employ satellite technology to give them advice on a high level because you can now sit on your computer and see so many smaller farmers and how they are performing. And seven, 14-day window to prescribe to them what they should do. Mm-hmm. And also at harvest, you then come in with threshers and your trading department to buy the harvest of what they own and take what you have so that you don't lose the capital you deployed on the farm. So that's mm-hmm. crop production, and that's a complexity that comes in how we build specific solutions, right? Now, just to come to trade alone, in Africa, there's a general 30% post-harvest loss. Yes. Think about that. In Nigeria, it's said to be 60%, meaning 60% mm. of what is produced is lost. On the farm loss, in generally in Africa, 30% of what is produced is lost post-harvest losses. Mm-hmm. So why would you spend more time doing input financing when you can actually take care of the farm, the losses that are happening on the farm, to ensure that you have an efficient agriculture industry that literally sells all that it produces. So nothing goes to waste. Mm-hmm. That is better to solve for that, to keep pushing more money to produce more. So for commodity trading, we had to break the problem down. Small bear farmers are scattered. They are different places. They do not have data or, or, or what you call access to um, a smartphone app that can allow them access to the market. So we look at the technology that works in areas where there's no cellular data network, just GSM. So you take USSD, you plug into USSD, a very basic sequence that allows farmers to say, I have two bags and it's going for 100 CDs and he can request to sell. And then you take advantage of existing infrastructure. Once again, breaking the problems into bits, infrastructure being storage. So you take existing infrastructure like warehouses and allow the warehouse officer to receive the goods and make a commission for ensuring quality and quantity. And then it doesn't end there. You have the whole transportation problem. You're not going to invest money buying trucks. So you can invest in the network of truck, truck owners so that you can take your commodity to the right destination. So bottom line, my engineering experience allowed me to understand how to look at complex problems and find solutions that exist to mitigate and solve these problems. And by so doing, prevent the loss of food on, on farms and also allow commodities from, farm, from farms to reach the right place. And for the farmer, ensure that he has a ready market for his harvest and he's not losing money. He's not losing his crop because he doesn't have a ready market. That's the kind of experience and technicality that goes into our work. And thanks to the training I have, I've been, my team and I have been able to build that solution. It's a long answer, but I hope it gives you context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've also given a little bit more background on the business, which I want to come back to and ask. But before I ask that question, I want to ask why the where? So why and how did you come to be living and working where you currently live? I mean, you've gone abroad, you've been other places. Why did you choose to come 
<laughs> I grew up in Ghana, but my father was a steward, so we traveled a lot. Like mm. at the age of, I think, 16, I'd been to the US, I'd been to Germany by the age of 12, and um, traveled quite a lot. But, mm-hmm. and by the way, my siblings all live out of Ghana and work in different banks, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, and it goes on. But mm-hmm. when I looked at Africa and I looked at the opportunity here, and I looked in the States and in Switzerland and in different places that had been able to solve some of these basic challenges that we faced with. I just got to the point where I said, it does not make sense to take um, all this intellect, all this skill, all this knowledge and go live outside in a different country and, and put all that skill to work there. Mm-hmm. There are enough people who have good brains to do that. I think we need more of that here. We need young, passionate people who are, who are at least a little bit smart to solve real problems. So that's why I decided to focus and stay in Accra and and be part of those who are changing um, the narrative in Africa. Um, by the way, you can hear my daughter in the background because she always yes. around me. It's okay. She's a cheerleader. <laughs> yeah, so that's why I decided to stay in Ghana. But why Accra? Accra is the center of every commercial activity in Ghana. You have the strongest internet, you have the investors, you have the harbors, you have the airport. So working from Accra as the headquarters and then having access into the most remotest of places is the most efficient thing to do. But that said, still able to travel 14 hours to the northern part of Ghana and you know test our technology and make sure it's working. So why Accra? Because it offers the platform and a place to efficiently work and grow your business. So let me go back to the, the business and, and, and how you came up with this concept of crowdfunding, right? Because most agriculture, as you mentioned, are either investing in one side or the other. And it's usually either large scale or individuals. And so the question is, how do you structure a crowdfunding and what exactly is being invested in? If I'm buying something, what am I investing in? So basically our platform is what you see online is designed to allow you to basically you know, invest into two types of things, crop production or commodity trading. Mm-hmm. Remember, I said two complex problems. At the base, you needed, first of all, capital at the floor to cause a change you need. So capital for input financing for farmers translates into seed fertilizer and mechanization, in other sense, plowing, right? Mm-hmm. Why is that necessary? Because when you take a small older farmer who do about four to five acres, the output from their harvest just takes them through maybe six to eight months of the year. And after that, getting towards the farming season, they have very, very limited capital to grow more. Now, so you want to be able to do some level of input financing, particularly for seed and fertilizer so that it can produce. Mm-hmm. However, remember the issue I told you about post-harvest losses? Mm-hmm. Even though he will have a harvest, he's going to lose a considerable amount of it on the farm. Something he sweats and really works hard for, he's still going to lose some on the farm. So that when you finance trade on our website, what you're doing that the money is translating into a ready market to buy the harvest so that the farmer is not going to wait. And in the process of waiting for a buyer, the crops go bad, right? So on our platform, crowdfunding is one of the five ways we source financing. The different channels we source financing include fund managers, family offices, development partners or DFIs, development financial institutions, banks, and high net worth individuals. So these are all our sources of financing, but crowdfunding is just one of the main resources. Got it. Mm-hmm. So we can either source financing purely for input financing or for trading, but we typically now do much more of our fundraising for commodity trading. In other sense, 
money to buy the farmer's harvest and make sure it gets to areas that need them. So these are the two things you can finance on our platform. But when you do create an account, you go through an elaborate KYC process that is required by the Security and Exchange Commission that allows it requires you to put some very you know private information, passport, right. etc. Now, when you're done with that process, um, we then have everything linked to our accounting software, which ensures that we can really account for everything um, to the regulator and to our board and everyone who is part of the business. And from there, capital moves to the right the department. If the department is um, trading, it goes to commodity purchase. If the department is going to its farming, which has already been predefined and configured in our platform, it goes into input financing, being seed of fertilizer manipulation. So that's how our company is structured. And all this has been codified into our website. So whatever amount goes where it's predefined in software, and all the accountants needs to do is just follow the instructions from our software. Then it goes to the guys underground. Underground is not software, it's human beings getting their hands dirty. So we have a slogan that says, grow for me now, everyone can, can farm, or let's get our hands dirty whilst you watch, right? The capital then translates into either commodity purchase, which is literally buying, carrying, transporting, and this real field work, or crop production. So a lot of smallholder farmers they have a lot of manual processes, and that's unfortunate. And what are we trying to do is modernize them. So one of the key things we do is instead of farmers using a hoe and a cutlass, we would use a plow from a tractor to plow for all the farmers that are receiving input financing from us. And then instead of just the farmer getting any type of seed, we will get the best seed for the farmer to grow. Then throughout the whole growth period of the plant, we are monitoring through satellite images and advising agricultural extension officers what to look out for on these farms because we can see on a larger scale what's happening on the farm and what they may not see with their eyes because we have spectral images from the satellite. Right, right. I was going to say, yeah, science. And and we know what it means like in terms of whether the crops are stressed, whether there's enough um, water in the soil, whether there's enough crop cover or if there's too much any crop cover, that means there's weeds growing. So we advise them on what to do. So that's how we employ technology at different stages and phases of the production side or in terms of the training side. For example, when commodities are moving from the warehouse to the off-taker, what we do is that the trucks are, have GPS trackers on them so that the truck driver does not disappear with maybe $20,000 worth of boots and we can ensure that we know exactly where it is. So mm-hmm. this is basically how we are using technology within, the, within our business and how we are ensuring that the business at every phase operates properly. I hope this really answers your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have a clear understanding of what I would be investing in on either side. And so my understanding is that you then also really do have all the off takers all lined up for the commodity as well. Yes, that's what we always do. And we mm-hmm. we get off takers and I agree with them before crop production starts. However, mm-hmm. one of the important things we always say about our business in bioregulations, we cannot guarantee things to go as planned and um, for two main reasons in terms of crop production for small level it's we depend on rain we no one controls the rain as much as you can have a 14 day window to tell how it's going to happen we don't control what's going to happen so um, it's possible that you will put in all the measures but the harvest may not go as expected on the production side in terms of the offtake side we make sure we have offtakers before crops are produced however at the point of harvest remember it's a very large ecosystem Off-takers may either change their mind about purchasing or they may, prices may change. And why this is critical is because if you look at industries like 
or countries like maybe the US, which has a very significant ready market that is already buying commodities, you will not really get into that kind of scenario. But in very smaller markets, it may change. It may change because an off-taker you may have agreed with may come back and say, I cannot buy because either farmers can afford to buy because imports of poultry feed is now cheaper than what the local processor is producing. So there are multiple variables that makes it quite sometimes um, a bit unpredictable. But how we take care of all these things is making sure we find multiple off-takers so that it's a very rare scenario that an off-taker would say no. But it's a possibility. I'll give you a very good example. So in one of the one of the cycles of crops that we produced, um, an off-taker could not easily get a ready buy for the commodities because technically a certain level of expectation of the harvest was fell short just by say a five percent, right? So maybe you're looking for okay, let's take rice for example. You're looking for a seventy percent output of whole grains when milled. So if an off-taker gets a 60% output, he won't buy, or he's going to buy it very low, because he's also going to buy your, your paddy, he's going to mill it, and then sell it as, as right. So he needs to make a certain His profit, right. whole grain. Whole grain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He may get broken grains, but that's not his market. So now you need to have multiple off-takers for different quality standards. That's why mm-hmm. it, it goes beyond just producing, but ensuring that in the complex uh, market, or in the complex market, you said you we have off-taker for different grades, and that's that's one of the things that we continue to do, so so that there's never a, there's never waste, there's never glut, there's never commodities sitting um, on the shelf. And for us, uh, it's been a very exciting learning experience. We've had very nice times. We have very tough times with our sponsors because sometimes this le- customers don't care about this level of detail. They just want you to get a return on their investment, and it's understandable. But for us, we are looking at a very long term solution to a complex problem so we do take out we do um, understand the, the request of customers and how quickly they want returns but that's why one of the key things we do and display boldly on our website that we do not guarantee returns because it's a very complex industry and it's not streamlined like, like in the us or in uk or in canada and we're trying to streamline it so in that process there's going to be some hiccups but that's to your question yes that's how we figured it out and that's what we are doing to ensure that um, we have off-takers all the time before a commodity is listed, either for trading or for farming. Mm. You know, farming seems so simple, but it is, in fact, the one of the most complex. Yeah. And I think that's why it's so difficult to solve for. Like, you think about food shortages, et cetera, et cetera, and it's because, particularly because there's a little bit of politics now involved with farming, right? The idea of how do certain countries subsidize production so that they can export and then others ban imports from other countries. And so it's just this really interesting chess game that it has evolved globally. And then the people actually are the suffering because we're missing out on either local produce or the best prices generally. And as you mentioned, all of the losses. How, how did you fund your initial funding for this particular endeavor? How did you get it off the ground? Yes, I can't talk about initial funding without talking about how we started. Friends, we went on a trip from Accra to Nigeria, Mutala Airport on bamboo bicycles. We were doing it because we wanted to help raise funds for an orphanage, right? And they had to you know, buy, get a, a fridge, a new fridge that could store blood because a lot of kids got malaria and sometimes you need to do blood transfusion and the like. And on the trip from Accra to Ghana on bamboo bicycles, we saw how amazing and how much land Africa has. I mean, from Ghana to um, Togo to Benin, then 
through Bad Agree to Nigeria, it was just phenomenal. It was it's it's like blessings, like God has just blessed Africa, mm-hmm. Africa particularly. The the amount of lakes and rivers and greenery and it's just beautiful. And and we asked ourselves why should food still be a problem on a continent like this? You could literally throw grains just by the road and it would grow. In six months, you would find it grow. And we realized that it's really about being able to produce at scale. And to produce mm-hmm. at scale, capital was critical. So that's where the real idea started, vis-a-vis the story of me wanting to combine my background in agriculture with you know technology. So one of our founders is Francis, Godfrey, and Kwame. So Kwame, who is also one of our founders, said, hey, guys, we, we need to solve this. And we all like, yes, I have an agri background. Kwame has an agri background. Um, Kwame was running. Francis, my co-founder, also did his master's in soil water engineering. Godfrey was our technical guy, and he was our course of the developer. So it's like, look, guys, we have everything in here amongst ourselves as friends. And we, we are all very experienced people in we're doing whatever we do prior to this. So why don't we solve a bigger problem that would have generational you know, um, implications? Why, why don't we look further beyond now and try and deal with a serious problem? So we came together and Kwame gave us an initial seed investment of $15,000, which allowed us to start the business. So, but prior to 15 dollars, we had already tested this with friends and family and raised money from friends and family and started a small pineapple family to pay back their capital. So when we saw that work, then the $15,000 came in and then we started on January 2020. And that was really um, the official incorporation date. But some of the work that had gone into since January 2020 dated way back as like 24th June 2019, whilst I was on the fellowship. Because around that time, we launched our Facebook pages. We are not incorporated yet. So $15,000 was really our initial you know, capital to really start start doing some serious work. And, and that gave us opportunity to start. I guess it just flowed from there. So you have more investors now, I'm assuming, and you have to obviously have crowdfunders. So you, you mentioned there's five funding streams. So what percentage of the funding streams are from the crowd versus your other Input. Yeah, so it depends on which which section of the business. In farm input financing for farm would say about 95 percent comes from the crowdfunding for okay. Remember, our website has farms and has trade trade financing. About eighty percent, you know, about seventy percent comes from high net worth individuals who already understand the trade business because commodity trading is as old as as, as the world, right? And about thirty percent comes from the crowdfunding. So High net worth individuals really understand the opportunity in commodity aggregation and trading, and they do the large tickets for, for that. Mm-hmm. Okay. We are more familiar with crop production. So you've had, we want to say, probably about six harvests since you started? Yes, we've had that in uh, two, at least two cycles a, 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 a year. Cycles, about three crops, maize, soya, bean, and pineapple. Pineapple takes a year. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, so about six, six harvests. There's more detailed report on that. The last six mm-hmm. On average, um, with the harvest we've done till 2020, we've paid on average 98% of our sponsors for their profit. And that's mm-hmm. exciting, even though it took some time for especially 2020 sponsors. Yeah. And that's, for us, that's exciting because it validates really the problem you're trying to solve and it, it gives us a confidence that it can be scaled. However, financiers must be ready that clear that it's possible to, to lose capital as much as possible to make a profit. Once you do input financing or commodity trading, and you must be open to the risk of the two options. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Got it, got it, got it. So I want to ask you, since we're talking about the central business right now is in Ghana. So we want to hear what you hear. And I ask you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value this local Okay. So um, it's, it's, it's a pigeon phrase. It's a pigeon phrase, and it's like Charlie Go Be. Oh, okay. It's a pigeon phrase, and pigeon is like a slang of English, meaning mm-hmm. it's going to be okay. It's mm-hmm. going to be okay. And I really value that phrase because when you try to solve a very complicated problem that, that exposes every player to risk, two types of people will jump into the wagon. One are those who are ready to share in the risk and the success, and the second is those who only want to share in the success. Mm-hmm. So when you have those who just want to share in the success, and we begin to only demand for the outcomes that the potential potentially would have had. It becomes a very demanding environment and it places quite a lot of stress in the growth and learning phase of a company. So how founders and partners in the company encourage ourselves is that it will be because mm-hmm. we see the tunnel, we see the light and we see how we see how we blend and how to figure things out in the journey. Once you've seen how it works, when the pressure comes from amazing customers who demand nothing but the best and it's expected, we go like, it will be the patience and the, the time and the confidence to keep working on to build and, you know, a scalable solution that can impact you know, smaller farmers across Africa. Nice. That's why we like that phrase, it will be. And by the way, it really it really pulls down the nerves and makes you relax. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you don't have to worry. It's giving you the skill and ability and the wisdom to solve it and you can do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is, it is very soothing. So I'm curious, where are you expanding? So you ha- you started in Ghana and thinking about continent-wide, how you scale, how what, what's the next country for rollout and what do you see as the hurdles for systemizing this, like in terms of segregating your investors as well as the off-takers, like looking at cross-border trade? What are you thinking in terms of all of that expansion? Yeah, first of all, one of the things I'll say is that we're going, we'll be learning more as we get to the project expansion. That's the first thing I'll say. A lot of things you continue to figure out as it hits the ground. But we have a very clear playbook that has worked that we figured out areas. There are some slight areas needed for improvements, but we figured out the playbook that is required to make commodity trading work. And I go to our expansion strategies and trading part of our business. That's the aggregation and trading side of our business. That is what we are taking into nine other African countries we've identified. How it's working out, how it's going to be like, we have mapped out the process of sourcing, accepting, paying, storing, and transporting commodities um, in the business. It's, it's a playbook. It's pretty different. Mm-hmm. We've also mapped out how we are going into the market. And the market entry strategy is primarily through the Ministry of Food and Agriculture or the, the department in the state that is responsible for, for crops. And why that's important? Because the commodities we trade, including you know, soybean, maize, um, Cashew and the bonds have established in-country um, structures. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that the industry is organized properly. It just means yeah, yeah, yeah. Governmental yeah. authorities are responsible for them. So we become the right. channel through which we enter into these markets, and that allows us to penetrate easily. However, on the technology side, we've already started the work, and we are near completion of making the platform, the micro aggregator platform, which is used for purchasing the commodities from the farmers available in these nine countries. So even before operation starts, the technology itself will be accessible, it will be um, usable, 
but operationalizing it is what the real skill where comes in because then you need to find the right talent, you need to find train them to the standards that is required to ensure the quality of what is abroad, and then you can open the floodgates for um, um, more investment into those markets. But most importantly is to identify the type of community that does very well there. For example, Coco does very well in Ghana, Nigeria, but Coco doesn't you know, go at all. From what I know in South Africa, so you wouldn't want to do Coco in South Africa. So you need to understand what commodities, where they do very well, and then place those commodities on the platform. The other key strategy for us is to use the commodity exchange in the respective countries. Because the commodities exchanges solves for a marketplace problem, but we are solving for farm gates to warehouse. So the commodity exchange typically will have a number of warehouses, which allows them to allow people or farmers to keep their commodities there and trade on the exchange. But from farm gate to warehouse, that nobody's really solving it. That's what we saw through our micro and platform, which we source from farmers into warehouses. Commodity mm-hmm. exchange, you know, exchange in respective countries are is our critical go to market. And, strategy in addition to the government authorities and our technology itself. Mm, okay. And so what are the nine countries that we'll see you see go through? Yeah, I, I would rather just mention one and keep the rest in, in hiding because it's 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 important. I, I just um, yeah, I'm, keep it it. yeah, but I think one of the exciting countries that we are really, really looking at is Nigeria. Nigeria is mm-hmm. a phenomenal country. It's enormous. Mm-hmm. Whatever you can get to work in Nigeria, you can work everywhere in Africa. Because that's the, so that's the largest, um, so, mm-hmm. largest economy on the continent. So it's it's one of the places I think, even without saying everybody, says, definitely Nigeria has to be part of the list. Yeah, so Nigeria is one, and the other is I would keep it united for now. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I, I'm curious. You were a Mandela Fellow, and and so I want to understand and, and ask you to tell us a little bit more about that experience and how that experience played into building on your skill set. So the fellowship was a was a turning point in my life. I mean, in summary, one of the biggest thing I took away from the fellowship was I was amazed at the level of volunteering that Americans really, you know, they really volunteer a lot. And I realized that a lot of the things they've done and achieved is based on volunteering. People believe in a cause and then they offer their time and their energy for free to commit to do something. So examples of what I saw that really moved me and made me understand that we could solve problems once we could give people a reason and rally them together was, there's, a, there's an organi- there were three things I experienced. One was the Atlanta Food Basket. They have an organization that you know, takes um, you know, foods from families, hotels, restaurants that is canned, typically canned food that has some shelf life that is not being consumed. And instead of letting it go bad in these hotels or, 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 or restaurants or homes, they take it and then they redistribute it to the needy people who are poor or who go into stress because probably the dad lost a job and hence a paycheck is only come for the next two months and give them a, 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 a food basket for at least a week. And everything that happened there was purely from volunteers. There were just like a handful of employees. But people volunteered on a Saturday to come pack the food, separate the ones that are already, I mean, canned food primarily, packaged food, the ones that had gone bad and the ones that were good, and pack a food basket. And every people were doing this for free. And I was like, wow, that is powerful because it meant that they were solving the problem of hunger for their society by pulling resources together and without spending a dime, apart from the handful of staff that the the organization had, to feed thousands of people on a daily basis. 
Now, just really changed my mind about how we approach problems here in the continent. You know, um, I love Africa, I love Ghana, and I, that's why I'm here. I realize that sometimes we do do a lot of complaining, whilst we could solve it if we, someone could just step up and say, I'm going to take responsibility for this. And that was the first thing that really got to me and really changed my mindset and my paradigm about problem solving. The next thing I saw that really transformed me was, I think it was Independence Day, and they have this race they do every year. I've forgotten the name, but they literally run from like a couple of miles, right? And we volunteered to give water to those who were running. And it was just to mark the Independence Day. Now, the number of people who turned out to volunteer to bring water, they purchased and cups and set up tables. And they were, they were freely giving out water to those who were running to commemorate that day. It was phenomenal. I was like, who does that? I mean, and people were excited to do it. And the, the number of people who were running that day, of course, like it was really to, you know, commemorate a very important occasion in, the, in their lives as a country. And once again, that really, really hit me deep. And I was like, look, we can make a change if somebody, a leader would rise up and organize people and put them together. And the final thing you really had to do with the other African leaders I met on the program. One of the, I had a significant change in character because prior to the, the program, I was super confident about every decision I took. I didn't second guess myself. I thought I was absolutely right. But when I met with very intelligent um, leaders and I, I realized that, you know, there were multiple perspectives to things and I was not always right. And actually there are other people more smarter than I was. It was really humbling. And that, that, that effect taught me to be a team player, to be more, you know, um, open-minded and listen. And it's okay to disagree, but I had to understand that People had very intelligent perspectives, and it was it was really it really brought a change in my character. And the second part of my character change that I had during the fellowship was as a team player, I'm a choleric who is driven. And sometimes, sometimes in the past, I used to be very messless when people were a bit uh, when people's lag behind it, they couldn't catch up to what, mm. either the tempo or the pace at which the company was moving, and I could get a bit um, you know pretty aggressive, but not violent, aggressive. So mm-hmm. I, I realized that the entire purpose, and that's one of the last takeaway from the from the from the program at Lack Atlanta was a leader's responsibility is to be able to bring the entire team along. And even if someone has to mm-hmm. be kicked off the wagon, it has to be super clear that look, you've tried everything possible to make this guy work along with the team and you put in all the submitted, but the person's got to go and there's no doubt about it. Rather than just trying to get people off the wagon. Built out or brought out that real leadership quality. And, and and Jesus was a very clear example of that. You realize that Jesus was able to live with people, 12 amazing disciples, some older than him, was able to carry them along all the days of his life, even including Judas Iscariot. And mm-hmm. as a, a young pastor in my dad's church and as a believer, it really brought to life the principles that I read in the scripture. And yes, the Mandela Washington Fellowship was a very amazing experience for me. It allowed me to grow up as a real leader and understand what's required to cause change as I saw people volunteer to do amazing things in Atlanta. And I think that was one of the critical things that had helped me go and go for me and using crowdfunding as a key strategy for those who want to volunteer and are ready to share the risk or the, the profits or the loss that happens I'm trying to change a small order and agriculture industry in Africa.
Wow, that's awesome. Just for, for those of you who may not know, the Mandela Fellowship started in, I think, 2014. Yeah, somewhere around that. Yeah, and we've had one other fellow on, maybe a couple of other fellows on, but it was started by the Obama administration. And so it's just really focused on creating leaders yeah. on the continent. And, and we're seeing proof positive that that is something that is definitely happening. So it's a great dovetail for my next question, which is my mindset hack. So this is something that you can imagine or something that you know of. Yeah, so just to be setting, and prior to the interview, I, I wanted to be sure about the definition of mindset hack. And you're like, how do you mm-hmm. get your mind to really get into the right tone and get you the results you want, right? Mm-hmm. For me, it's it's really praying and spending time seeking God's help and direction on how to you know, solve certain complex problems that I face. That's a precursor mm-hmm. before my research or I dive into anything on a technical level. And why I do that is because, I mean, first of all, it's my upbringing. My, my mother, my parents are all Christians and I... Even though I wasn't a Christian, I got to I grew up and I got to understand and discover God for myself. And it, the experience happened one day as I was reading my Bible, after cleaning my dad's room, that was my responsibility. I was just reading the book of Romans. And I understood the whole thing about I, I comprehended the whole thing about salvation and the Christian faith, about free gift of righteousness and God forgiving us our sins. Why am I saying this? Whilst I was praying and I was reading the scripture, then I didn't fully grasp what my faith was. But as I prayed and I studied the scripture, I had a full understanding of what it was. Something that had to do, an abstract thing that had to do with the soul of man, I could understand by simply reading. And that was very phenomenal for me because then I realized that I could literally understand anything I needed to do. Of course, after praying and spending quality time trying to study the material. So I started using that as a very critical tool. Whenever I needed to you know, study something complex, I, I first spent time to pray and ask God for understanding. Then I jump into the technical problem or document, do my research, do all the scientific approach, which we all know of. I mean, my research and then and find the best you know um, approach to it after multiple testing variations. But it, it gave me the foundation. Whenever I pray, I feel my spirit really understands. And and for me, that that is a very powerful thing because when I start praying, I really zone into my mind and I really feel like God helps me a lot of things. And, and my life is a testimony. I, I was I was not a, such a very smart kid in school, but as I I. That time when I got to experience and discover God's love and his free gift of righteousness, I started doing very well in school. It started from my, my sixth, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade. I was doing pretty well. But throughout first grade to sixth grade, it was terrible, Ds and Cs. So uh, for me personally, prayer is it's not just a spiritual thing. It has a very direct physical mm. that allows my mind to focus and understand and process. So that's my story. That's my experience. That's my personal mind hack to figure out complex things and it forms the basis of my uh, you know, scientific and, and, and methodological approach to problem solving and, and getting my mind to really wake up to solve things. It's the it's a, a base and that's that's kind of the whole idea. So I like that. That's one very calming. So we've talked about your business so much and we we heard your your little one in the background a little bit there. So we want to know a little bit more about who Nana is when he's not running a company or being a serial entrepreneur. And you mentioned volunteerism and, and I know one thing that I'd love to find out more about and in, in concert with that, we want to know, are you a reader, a watcher or a listener? And what are some of your favorite reads, watches or listens? And tell us a little bit more about your love for aviation. Let me start with my love for aviation. So my father was cured, like yes. I said, and every day I'd see him in his white long sleeves and his black trousers, and he puts his tie on and carries his cap. And I'm like, I definitely want to be a pilot. He was a flight a, a crew member, a steward, 
flight attendant, and I wanted to be a pilot too. I bet I had that passion at that level. And I saw the former president Rawlings on TV once, and I knew he was a fighter pilot. And the guy said, like, mm-hmm. I definitely want to be a fighter pilot. And I said that at my third grade. And my, my, my parents didn't take me seriously. They thought it was just a childish ambition. So <laughs> right after secondary school, which which I'm not too sure the equivalent in, in, in the U.S. or in the high school, I, I, I said I was going straight into the military from high school after graduating secondary school with good grades. And everyone was shocked. I'm like, yeah, that was my ambition for my third grade. I want to be an Air Force pilot. So I went through the whole recruitment and I did pretty well. But just before I stepped in, um, I got counsel from an uncle who was a former Air Force commander that it's important I got, I got a degree to have a very broader scope to life before I started on my career. And after my degree, the opportunity to be a pilot, an Air Force pilot was closed. So I couldn't go because I just passed it by a year. So I lost that opportunity. However, mm. during the four years in school, I took that passion because during the recruitment to Air Force, we got to fly Cessnas. Cessna 172 is like a single engine aircraft. And I took that passion and I started a club in the university. And that club then translated into a club in the secondary school. Now we have a very large WhatsApp group in Ghana that most aviation enthusiasts connect because of that club. But that's my, my passion for aviation. And, and I hope that, what, and even though I couldn't become a pilot, one of my personal ambitions is one day I'll buy my own aircraft and I can fly. Yes. You know, our culture, aircraft has a very big use case. Yeah, exactly. Now, yeah. Who, who am I when I'm not running a company? That dad who would either be crawling on the carpet with my daughter and my son behind my back, or I'll be singing Coco Melon, the wheels on the bus, goes round and round. <laughs> yeah, or I would just be, um, you know, chatting with my wife, my amazing wife, Angie, who I've known from school, about how work was and the challenges with her work and strategies to solve it. That is, that is me. And I think I, I, I just, at home, when I'm not working, I'm just a dad who just likes to spend time with my family. When I'm not at home, I'm a pastor at church and I'm a, spon- I'm a lead pastor at my dad's church. It's a congregation of about 20 to 30 people and I'm responsible for ensuring that, you know, they are not just spiritually growing, but they are social, they are, they are, they are, their business, they are, their family lives are maturing. So I have a very big responsibility of being a leader to many people some older, some younger. So being an example to, to people. And I pray that God helps me to do that because it's a very demanding task. So when I'm not at home, that's my, and on Sundays, on weekdays, that's my job. But on a Monday to Friday, as you know, the grind happens and you, you are, you are dead working. So without, when I'm not at work, I'm a dad on Sundays, I'm a pastor, I'm a husband. Yeah. That's what I Okay, nice. Well, Mana, it's been lovely getting to know you and more about your work. I think it's amazing. I am so inspired by your problem solving in the agri-silk sector. I have farm farm dreams and, and I might you might see me on, on the platform. Tell us again where what your website is so people can find it. Yes, our it. website is Grow for Me, G-R-O-W-F-O-R. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And so before we sign off for today, do you have any parting words that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yes, I think it's very important to take the journey of life with people you you build very long relationships with, um, whether it's friends or whether it's marriage or whether it's business. I say that because um, my co-founders and I didn't just cycle from Accra to Nigeria. We're taking a journey of life together. One of my co-founders had his wife had three miscarriages, three miscarriages. One of the miscarriages he had, we were on the field. We were working um, in about 14-hour drive from Accra, and there was no way he could get back to Accra. Oh. And that was a painful thing, but 
because we had such a wonderful relationship, and not we didn't just approach business as business, but as family. And I was mm-hmm. there with her, even though her husband couldn't be there. And we went mm-hmm. through that process together. Why am I saying this? I think life is too short not to spend time with people who do not. You only have a transactional relationship with. Mm-hmm. I enjoy the the deepest things in life, and when you build deeper relationships. You know, it doesn't matter if you're the richest man in the world or you're an average income in or a poorer person. You feel really fulfilled because there's something that money can't buy and it's, it's, it's real deep love and deep relationships that cannot be purchased. And I think it gives you a very fulfilled life and you feel very complete and whole when you have that. So that would be my message for the world. To, coming from an entrepreneur who wants to have a $20 billion business, I think people will be surprised, but I think that's the most important thing. And and build great relationships. And of course, as a person, a believer, you have to also really try and build a very good relationship with Christ if you want to understand who he is. I think it's the best thing that could happen. And I talk about it both where I go. Thank you for that. Build great relationships. And listeners, build a great relationship with us. Like, share, subscribe, listen to the podcast every Tuesday at localcitizenspod.com. Please do check out the show notes. We have all of the information about the different activities that Nana spoke about. And until next time, bye for now.